Hey there, it's me, Denise Lee, and welcome to the Introverted Entrepreneur Podcast, where we help improve your mindset and your money. And in today's episode, I have a very special guest, Dr. Grant Tate. He is the author of Hand on the Shoulder, but he has a more important message about hope, restoration, discovering yourself, and not getting burnt in the process of your professional development. If you're an entrepreneur or executive or someone who's just willing and eager to look for clarity amidst whatever you're going through, this is going to be a really important conversation that you definitely want to listen to. We're going to dive into it after this short break. All right, we're starting. You know, I as I was thinking about our conversation before this time that we have together, I was thinking, what is the most important thing that we should be getting out of this? Because I truly believe that this conversation that we're having, obviously, everyone here is listening to it. It is more than just us talking. It's about a greater and bigger purpose. And I'm so excited to share with other people your book hand on the shoulder but more importantly about what you learned about yourself through all the many facets of your life in IBM and consulting and your your marriages and just everything in general so just thank you so much for being here well thanks I uh, it's a pleasure to work with you and I have really liked the opportunity of getting to know you and having this conversation. And my hope for the book is that it can help other people in how they uh, perform their jobs and how they deal with people around them, how they deal with their, the people they care for. And hopefully they can learn from some of the lessons I did, uh, I learned. Um, and of course, one of the things in writing such a book, uh, a memoir, is looking back and thinking about those incidents and things that happened to those relationships that were good ones or bad ones. And you always ask, what can I, what could I have done better? Mm. And I, one of the things that's been interesting to me as I've gotten response from the different people who've read the book, how the different perspectives they come from is a strong indicate, strong uh, indicator of what they might get out of the book. That was a fellow in one of my uh, book sessions over in a, an adjoining county that just was totally interested in the business aspects. What was it like to work in a big corporation? How did you make that decision? Or how did they make this decision? And others have focused on the uh, small town stories of growing up in small town of Orange, just Virginia, just 3,000 people. Uh, others have looked at the relationship questions. Others have looked at the balance between job and, and or career and personal life. So it's, it, it's been actually quite rewarding to me that, to see that people can draw lessons from this some of which are surprising to me. One of the things that I got as I read through your book was just this idea of providing back. And 
you mentioned at least three different times in your book, Grandma Tate, and her words of, if you have a talent and don't use it, it's a sin. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> and and that, that statement uh, became, I think, a driving force for me. And that was, was drilled into me from an early age. She was a small village Sunday school teacher in a rural church. And I used to go to her Sunday school class and she was quite a character in that, that uh, rural neighborhood. But her lessons were, were strong. And I think that thinking about that has always been a big question for me. What should I do now? What's my role? I have, what are my talents that I can apply to whatever the situation is? And that's even a question right now in terms of what's going on in our country. How can I, what are the things I can do? What, what are my talents that I can apply to help people in the situation we're all going through? I like how you say that about like, what can I do in the situation that we're going through? I, we, when we were talking earlier, we were kind of talking for those who weren't listening and part of the conversation, we were talking about just certain culture of things that were going on. And I said that I don't believe in offering help and wisdom to those who don't want to receive it. And as I, I was kind of reading throughout the people that you interacted with, your assistant, Darlene, I'm sorry if I'm getting her name wrong, Yes, right. who constantly yeah. said, I love you. <laughs> you didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, of course, on the surface, that that meant that she that I was treating her well. But from the standpoint of uh, wanting to know in depth, what she meant by that was something I didn't want to touch at the time. Mm. So, <laughs> so whether she meant that romantically or not, I never found out because I, I, I thought it was inappropriate to ask. <laughs> oh, yes, obviously, you know, but and handle uh, with care if you're an executive <laughs> and someone says that to you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> especially in this day and age where things can be secretly recorded with pens. Yeah, right. It's, that's that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As I was reviewing and thinking about your early days, I remember just kind of reading in the beginning of your book, you said that you wanted to be a manager like your dad. But there was a conflict because you saw that your father's supervisor was not running the way it should be done. But you felt a little disillusionment when you started working in the beginning stages of IBM. Can you speak to those who are listening about that? Yes. Well, he was a, a supervisor in a, a called the American Soap Mills in Orange, Virginia, and they made uh, cloth and it, during the war made parachutes. So nylon and those, those sorts of things. And uh, I think he had 30 people uh, who he directly supervised who were manufacturing people. But the person who owned the factory would come down and just berate people for they weren't producing enough, the costs were too high and those sorts of things. And at that time, people were working 12 hours a day, six days a week without vacation, by the way, and no benefits. 
So it was a pretty horrible existence and from our standards. But so the way I admired my father is that at dinner table, I always heard stories about the people he worked with. That, but most of the stories had to do with what he could do to help them, including, uh, for instance, he found that one young woman was, was, came to work hungry and hadn't eaten well for several days. And so he saw that she made, took action to make sure that she was fed and, and taken, taken care of uh, with, within the realm of the, the factory and, and the, the, the restaurants around. And so there were lots of those sorts of stories of how he helped people on the job become better in, in, in enjoying their job. When I got to the company, the IBM company was, was sparkling in, in terms of its, its uh, values when I first joined the company. Respect for the individual was the top, the, the top value of the company. And when I became a manager, the person who appointed me said, this is the most important value. It's up to you to make sure that the respect for the individual is carried out within your department. And the other implication of that is that we don't fire many people, but if you break that rule, you get into trouble around here. And so my long, I was with the company 30 years, so it's not like I was there a short time, but over that time, when the company started facing the, the challenge of uh, the uh, suit that the Justice Department brought against uh, anti, uh, antitrust and some new leadership, the company got away from that. And lots of things that I saw were not good practices. And you know, you always hear the story, particularly from politicians who say, Mike, I didn't leave the party, the party left me. Well, uh, that's the way I felt about the company in my latter years, is that the, the elements that I thought were most important were uh, the things that the top management was not implementing anymore. It lost its soul, the way I put it. Yet at the same time, within the department that I was uh, running at the time, uh, I carried on implementing what I thought was important in terms of the way we, we uh, dealt with the people. So if you take the, the comment about my secretary who made the, made the comment to me, you know, what, what is the response for that? And the response for that is treat that person with respect. You know, uh, so, you know, to give her the freedom to do her job, to give her encouragement, to have her know, get some personal reward for what, uh, what she's doing. When I began working for IBM, the number one value was respect for the individual. And when I became a manager, a first line manager, the person who appointed me took me aside and said, look, we are serious about this. And th this is your most important job is to take care of the people who work with you and around you. And uh, the way people get into trouble here is that they don't implement that. And that was carried out in terms of policies, in terms of how people dealt with each other, 
and how managers led. What happened in the long run though, after probably my 20th or 25th year, the company moved away from those values. Some new people came in and they started uh, putting more procedures in place or doing things that I thought were, were detracting from that, including some misleading statements that came from the top, I thought. And, uh, they, and part of that, I think, was driven by the fact that the Department of Justice sued IBM for, for antitrust and that just turned the company into very defensive kind of a, a company. And so at the end, uh, I felt that the, the company I, I loved and cared for was no longer there. And finally, I said, well, you know, when they came to, it, it came out with a new plan that says you can take early retirement and do something else, I said, yes, I'm out of here. <laughs> And that's when I left and essentially started my own consulting practice and then went to Europe for five years as part of that. I'm going to quote this directly out of your book. I've, I, I told my husband about it. I was actually talking about it with some other people because it just really hit me hard. So if you don't mind, I'll just go ahead and of quote course, it. Yeah. Demo demotion was as bad as firing got in those days. Because IBM is not a company to put people on the street, division and corporate headquarters were filled with managers who had been assigned to staff jobs after failing as a manager of a manufacturing or sales unit. The common phrase is, quote, John's in the penalty box. Some of the John's regained some influence, but that is a rare case. More likely, they faded off to some ambiguous assignment in the planning or personal departments, personnel departments. They would have been better off if the company had fired them. At least then they could have reconstructed their self-esteem instead of letting their talent rot away in the obscurity of a demeaning job. Yes, a, a friend of mine who worked in the HR department actually studied those people. He looked at 19 people who had gone through that and interviewed them and asked what happened after that happened, after they lost their job. Uh, and these are people who were in jobs that, you know, had a thousand, maybe even 6,000 people. So they were high level leaders. And one of the elements was uh, most of them had not been told specifically why that they were moved from that job. And that, of course, had severe psychological implications on the person. And the, what, we, what the, my friend found out, there were a lot of psychological issues, broken families, divorces, and, and those sorts of things that happen as a result. And that, that uh, I always, as, a, as an operating manager, knew it was important. Uh, was it really important to be honest with people. If, if they are not performing or not doing something that's up to standards, they, people need to be told in a way that reflects what you can do better. Uh, feedback is critically important to all of us in whatever role we are, we're in, in a job or whatever, whatever we're doing. 
And uh, of course, as you said before, when we were just chatting, some people don't like it, but at the same time, it's better to be honest than to avoid the issue. I don't want to preach the crier here. I know those who, those who are listening may be solopreneurs or you may have some employees. Are you wherever sees in your life? I just, just want to say this out loud. And I, and I know that you reflect this in the book so much is that the chaos began when I was unable to be honest with myself. Right. And just jumping from one chaos to another without the inflection time. So can, I know it's a little off the beaten path of the book, but I just wanted to say, and or just ask you really, how did you go through the process of reflecting in your professional life with the people that you were, that were working under you? Well, one of the things I did was I set a five-year target. Now, five years these days is a long time. A lot of people change jobs even long before five years. But when, after I, whenever I hit the five-year point, I did take time to reflect and say, mm -hmm. where am I? Where would I like to go? How am I feeling? Well, the retrospect, and that is that I was really good with reflecting on the job. I was not really good in reflecting where's my relationship. And that was the major disconnect that happened to me. And that's reflected in, in this, this book is uh, I did not pay enough attention to what was happening in my, my home, I, my personal relationship. And that's where the, the real stress landed. But uh, with regard, you know, at, at one point, I, I relate to the going to the University of New Mexico. I'd been in a very stressful high-level job for five years, which was long for me, and said, now's the time. I need a change. I've done enough. Um, I'm okay with what I've accomplished. Let me try something new. And I took a year off, went to the University of New Mexico, uh, served on the faculty and helped uh, get uh, Hispanic people and, uh, and Native Americans to come to engineering was part of my my task there, uh, very, very rewarding and uh, a, re a case for renewal uh, and that experience in a whole different environment. Mm. Well, let's take a little detour to your personal life. And one of the things that I this really struck me hard was your ex-wife's Joyce's reaction to you receiving your doctorate. And it was not what I would expect from a spouse, especially a spouse that I'm assuming you've been married for 20 plus years to be seething with resentment at, upon you getting your doctorate. And we're not going to try to figure out what she was thinking and what was going on mentally with her. But I do want to ask you, as you were sitting there getting the crown achievement of your life professionally, but everything in your personal life was crumbling, how, how were you able to kind of just navigate through that? Because I'm perplexed even wondering how you, you did that. <laughs> what were you thinking? What, what was going on with you mentally during that, that time frame? Uh, well, I was in I was in pretty horrible conflict. I 
Well, that that uh, that degree, that's that uh, award you're talking about was uh, actually a dual accomplishment because I got the doctorate degree from Pace University in New York, but I was also on the stage being recognized as the outstanding student of the year in the in that program, and and so it was. I, it felt like quite an achievement for me, but she was very resentful, and it was a something that I never really, and even in retrospect, can't figure out. And that is that uh, I was I was pushing to try to learn as much as I could because I saw that as necessary for my self-esteem as well as actually important for the, the job and career. But she ref, although she refused, to even take a class in a university. Uh, and even though I kept saying, you know, we've lived next to a university in all these places and you're obviously interested in learning because you read a lot, but she, she, just, she resented my drive to get more, uh, more learning as we went along. And, and so the way I reflect on that now is that was so fundamental because that drive is fundamental to who I am. It still is because I constantly am trying to learn new things and push on the edge of, of learning wherever I can to whatever capabilities I have, but that's me. And she never understood that and resented it. And uh, it's a sad thing to say, but I, I didn't know how to deal with it in, uh, at that time. And I, I think, uh, you know, knowing that how I, what I've learned in my practice as a coach and consultant, I could probably find a way to talk to her uh, in in much more understanding way than I was capable of in those years. Uh, but I would love to have had a chance to really understand what that was all about. Mm. And for those who are listening and wondering to know how did that relationship end, you have to read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other other thing that uh, you have to say, how did I get through it? Uh, Did I get through it well? Because one of the following chapters is me, uh, is a a scene with me in the psychiatrist's office. So uh, that that also is in the book that for, for people to read. But that was that particular that visit with the psychiatrist was I set off the kind of help I finally reached out to get and finally uh, stopped my downward downward spiral and started an upward spiral. People who are listening may be in a relationship right now, or maybe they're looking for a relationship, or maybe they're just stuck in limbo right now trying to bear their competing agendas professionally and they say, well, I, I, I can't really deal with my relationship issues. What would you say to people who are like, I know I have relationship issues, but it's not a big problem. What would you say to those who are listening? Well, if you can say, I think I have relationship problems, it is a big problem. Oh, I, I often have a chance to speak to high school or college students in a group And part of that speech is that one of the most important decisions you have to make is choosing your partner. And that can be 
uh, partner in life or it can be a partner in business as in that generalization. But one of the things I think is that do you share the same vision, the, the, the same vision of life? Uh, are, there, are you overlapping in the kind of things that you hope for as part of your life? And some sort of simplistic examples of that is if you have a spouse that says, I'm a career military person and we're going to move every two years, then what are you signing up for? If you're saying, no, no, I want to stay in my hometown, then that's not going to be good. But that, that question of asking the person that you are partnering with, what are your dreams? What do you, what do you see about the future? What are we, if we stay together, what does that look like to you? And if those things turn out to be different, then you, you really need to say, am I in the right place in the right time? And, and though, so I think if you're in a relationship now, then it's never too late to have that conversation and it's never too soon. <laughs> so, and that, that means uh, some in-depth conversations, some caring conversations where you really stop and listen to the other person and try to understand what's important to them. And we have a saying that I call that we call WAIT, W-A-I-T, and it stands for why am I talking? And that means it, the, there's, there's a time in that discussion when you express yourself, but there's also a lot of time where you should be listening in depth uh, without judgment to what the other person hopes for. And those conversations are really critical at any time in our life. I don't want to turn this into a full tilt Dr. Phil session, but I do want to just dive in deeper about this conversation. And I want to talk about it through the angle of Sally. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, Sally was um, your, your second wife and it was a rather interesting relationship where you thought she was a great listener, but she really wasn't. Can you speak to that? Yes. Well, I, I think uh, I met her at a very critical time. And so you talk about the time when I got my degree. How did I get through that? Well, she was an immediate help. She was first aid for, for me at that time. Somebody I could talk to seemed understanding and, and, and such. But what I signed, signed up for in that relationship is that she was a... Uh, in, a, in an industry, the TV industry, that was hard driving. And her, it turns out that her value system and mine were in the long run quite, quite different. And again, uh, I made the mistake of not understanding that. And um, so, you know, and if somebody looked at that simplistically would say, well, you know, you met her on the rebound. Well, I guess maybe that's right on the surface. But at the same time, she filled a need in me when I needed it and probably uh, saved me from uh, some other destructive things I might have done. But at the same time, in the long run, it was not the right relationship. 
And it took me years to figure out how to deal with that and to find my own freedom from by uh, going to, actually I headed to Europe to discover myself and it worked. (laughs) Yeah. And you met the love of your life, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. Right, um, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm now I'm I'm, I'm another doing another quote out of your book is, quote My downward spiral stopped when I began reaching out to others for friendship and help, opening up to m- my feelings and vulnerabilities, and forgiving myself and others for not meeting the false standards I had set. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, you know, then, uh, you know, you talk about what does it mean to write this book? And part of the part of that process, I think, was also uh, forgiving myself for things I thought I'd done wrong. So I was I brought up with really high standards for myself and, you know, going through a uh, bad personal relationship was a was in conflict with those values. And what was I where was I storing those things? How did I? I deal with those. And so forgiving myself and saying, Brent, you're okay, is an important part of the process here. Mm. And and so the other thing is that going back to that uh, breakup with my first wife, at that time, there was, I had nobody I could talk to. Mm. I wasn't smart enough to have a coach. I wasn't smart enough to go reach out and try to get some therapy for myself at the time. And I had uh, basically walled myself off so I could not talk with my friends in depth about it. I was too embarrassed to say I had a bad relationship. And, uh, but when we broke up and I suffered that, uh, I said, never again will this happen to me. And ever since then, I've been trying to build stronger, better relationships with, with friends and loved ones. And that's been a great focus for me. And it's really... And I, I, yeah, and I definitely see that, you know, you're trying to find that harmony and balance and not just working yourself up for approval or more cloud or more, what you know, whatever. What I find so fascinating, you, you probably can echo, you know, as coach consultant that you meet so many people who are so perf- high performing, so driven, but there's this fear that they'll be taken less seriously by reaching out and asking for help. Yes, and that, I think that's part of that, you know, thing that is popularly called the imposter syndrome. <clears throat> you know, it's, uh, and uh, Gallup has done a lot of surveys on that and found that some big number, like 80% of executives say that if people really knew how little I know, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> And so, and I think that, uh, you know, it's certainly I experienced that if you think about the big turnaround job with turnaround, turning around that big software lab, you know, I was, uh, you know, uh, you you can't trust with so many people when you're in those kinds of things. So you feel vulnerable Mm. because there are people who are actively trying to tear you down. Mm. And, and therefore, how do you, successfully choose who you can let your hair down with, who can, who can be your confidant and how you can express yourself and all of the self doubts that you might have. You need somebody 
You need, you need people around you who can reinforce your good values and listen when it's important to listen and care about you enough to be able to uh, help you get through whatever is, is coming up. And if you look at those sort of executive jobs, every day you're making decisions that involve the lives of people, maybe many people. Mm. And it's a, it's a big responsibility. And, you, and being, uh, being vulnerable in the right way, letting people know who you are and you can be yourself is, is uh, really important. But at the same time, there are certain things you have to protect about yourself so other people won't find ways to tear you down. Mm. It's, a, it's a critical balance. Those who are listening and feel as if they need the support, you've probably been needing support for a while. Okay. <laughs> Let's just keep this real. And you're not doing yourself, your community, your clients, anybody any good by ignoring the need to reach out and being honest. And I, I know that Grant, you would probably agree with me by with this sentiment that you don't want to wait decades later. Right. Telling people, I wish I would have asked help earlier on in my career, especially when I started he reaching certain heights professionally. Yes. And the, you know, that the word that we use these days, of course, is authenticity. And that is, can you be yourself in your job and your role? And are you being yourself? It's, it's a quite, not just a question of freedom, but it's a question of determination to be yourself and find a role, a job or whatever that really suits who you are and that you, your, your own values are not in conflict with the organization or the people you work with. In my own role as a consultant and a coach, I have the, the delightful freedom of being able to select the people I work with. People will call me up and, and ask for help, and most of the time I can, I can work to help them. But once in a while, I'll, someone will contact me, and that's not a person that I, whose values I would, would be willing to work with. And I always joke, jokingly say, would you help a mafia leader become better? Well, you know, <laughs> not better at that job, perhaps. <laughs> but if the person said, how do I get out of this? That might be a different question, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, and actually that kind of makes me think about in, the, in your book, you talk about the hypo. And I was like, what's the hypo? High potential manager list. And it was, you thought it was that pot of gold gold and it literally was a pot of coal <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah that were and that that uh, being on that list then opened you up to certain opportunities but also opened you up to certain expectations as well and and then and the interesting thing is you going back to the case we were talking about about the 19 people that were in the man my friend's study you were told when you were on the list, but to my knowledge, there was nobody who uh, that was ever told you're no longer on the list. Mm. <laughs> so you're shooting up like a star and all of a sudden you, you stall, what happened? And so 
the do you get told or not now yeah. uh, so but you know we all reach our uh, you know in a situation that there they say that you you know, certain limits to how far a person can go just based on their capabilities but also just based on the the, the uh, opportunities you have in either a corporation or in society in general. After your, your New Mexico sabbatical, you felt that you were demoted. You got kicked off the rainbow of joy and delight professionally. Do you believe that it was actually a blessing or a curse? Or what are your thoughts about that in general? It was really hard at the time, as I reflect in the book, because, again, I didn't know what had happened, except that I had jumped off the train for a year. Mm. And, and if I had stayed there instead of taking the sabbatical, it probably would have been a different, different track. So they that uh, jumping off and going out to help uh, a bunch of uh, people uh, try to get into engineering as a career as was not quite on what was expected, I think. Mm -hmm. And and so I was put into a, a role that I was not qualified for and uh, which tended to serve me later better. But, uh, you know, in the long run, looking back, it was, was a blessing because I was put into a situation that where I learned a lot of new things the, my assignment to the personal computer project would never have happened, probably, if I hadn't uh, gone through that experience, because I was in a different spot and therefore uh, found my way into that project, which turned out to be a really interesting project and uh, set me off in learning a lot of things that were outside the sort of typ typical corporate things that I was learning. How to, how to sell in a retail environment, how to grow a small organization, all those sorts of things. So all those learning experiences help inform what I do today, in, including uh, having to face the big question like, hey, my upward, up, up, upward path was disturbed. What does that mean? Hmm. That actually kind of makes me segue into a quote that you also mentioned many times throughout the book is from Al Zettelmoyer, right. who said, I, you, I, <laughs> you know exactly what I'm about to say, but I'll say it for the benefit of those who are listening. Remember, Grant, the corporation has no soul. Yeah, it's uh, it, and absolutely right. And never forget that one. Um, and uh, well, he said that in a very interesting environment because I was, I, I was in a job that we were uh, in a division that had 11 manufacturing plants all over the world. And I was responsible for the planning and the strategy and those sorts of things. And so he asked me if I'd be willing to go to Amsterdam for three years to help, uh, again, another turnaround job to do work with that manufacturing plant. And my question was, what will happen to me when I get back? And Al said, remember Grant, the corporation has no soul, which meant, again, we'll, we'll send you over there and forget you. <laughs> wow, wow. You know, and I, this is a little bit sidebar note because I know for those who are listening, they may be 
consultants or coaches or whatever capacity uh, in entrepreneurship. And it's almost as if the unspoken rule is dance on fire until you get the experience and you get clout. And yeah, well, they, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I guess the uh, one of the sort of looking at the implications for people who are, well, let's start first with people who are professionals starting in their first job. If they aspire to be a leader, manager, or whatever we choose to call them, then my usual experience is get, my usual advice is get some real hands-on experience first. And when you have an opportunity to get to lead a team, then take that because that experience early in the career is really important. There, if you go to an MBA program and you come out of that program and they're, you're, they're giving a salary of $150,000 or more, then what company is going to give you the opportunity to be a first-line manager? And the answer is not many because first-line managers make 70000 perhaps in that mm. kind of organization. Mm. So uh, some, some people never get that hands-on early experience, and that becomes really, really important. Uh, that uh, so, uh, I think you know one of the questions I often ask people that I'm working with as, as a coach is when you're in situations, the it's really important to ask yourself, what am I learning? Sort of some of the some people say, well, you know, what's it doing for your resume? No, no, that's not the question. What am I learning? Mm. And, and learning how to work with people who are doing real work, building things, you know, driving bulldozers, whatever it might be, uh, but learning how to get things done with, with people is critically important in any professional job that you might have. So good. You know, I, I love how you say the putting the emphasis on learning, not necessarily about how much money you're making, you know, and how, how, how many people know you. Because I guess, in, as we're recording this in July 2022, there, and we're slowly emerging now, this coronavirus epidemic there, mm -hmm. and people are slowly going back to work and less Zoom in and more actually in person mean there's this need to want to impress, but mm -hmm. not necessarily learn. Right, right. And so the learning is, is what's absolutely, absolutely critical. And uh, they, you know, you can, you can, you can plan that. Or if you're, if you're not quite sure what you want to do, experiment. Uh, that I ask, I say to people, if you're, if you are taking some time off, or you're look, you're not sure what the next step is, then don't just drift, experiment. Are you, are you drifting or are you exploring? Mm. And one of my clients right now who has just stepped away from a CEO job running a good company uh, mm. is taking the, he's not sure if it's a year or exactly what it is, but he said, I just want to look around and get some experiences different from that environment I was in. And my advice is relax and enjoy it. But yeah, whatever he does, whether it's, you know, going to work on, work on a farm that he owns as uh, inherited from his family, or whether he's going to the beach and meeting new people, 
Oh, those are experiences that are, are important in this self-exploration time. And actually, that's a really good segue for us to talk about self-exploring in France, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> and later in the Netherlands, where you, you met your love. And so obviously, you didn't think you were going to get married again. I, obviously, you didn't think about what you wanted to do professionally, but it all kind of worked itself out. But it took someone outside of you to realize that. Can you speak to that? Well, I, I, the, I, I uh, <laughs> well, let me let me jump back and start the story. I, I was in uh, in Connecticut. I had worked on starting this company with another fellow from from IBM, and then he got a call from Paris to come lead a company in in Paris. And I said, well, Bill, you've got to take it. You know, you love, you love Europe and it's an opportunity. So jump at it. So he went and six months later, the phone rang one day and he said, Grant, help. <laughs> How would you like to come over for three months? And I was, it was, it hit me at exactly the right time. And I said, when do you like me? And he said, How about Monday. <laughs> so, so I packed up everything, went to Paris. And that was supposed to be a three month assignment. And then it uh, became three more, and then eventually became a year. Uh, but what we were doing was providing uh, videos, uh, video education to people all over Western Europe. Then I followed a project to Amsterdam, to the Netherlands, and in that uh, in that all that transition period, I had met Ancoline, who is currently my who was my wife and uh, developed a a relationship that has just been exceptionally rewarding. And here we are almost 25 years later here in Charlottesville. So, um, and we started, she and I started this company together in in, uh, Netherlands. And uh, it was a very funny experience because I, I needed a, a job permit to stay there. And I said, well, the best way to get it is to start a company and hire myself, give myself a work permit. And then she found in the library two provisions that we could do that through the tax treaty with the United States. We marched down to the immigration authority one day and the guy said, well, Mr. Tate, your visa is running out in 60 days. What are you going to do? said, easy, sir. We're starting a company. I'm hiring myself and giving myself a work permit. And he laughed in my face. And then uh, she reached into her briefcase and pulled out two documents uh, in Dutch language, put them on the desk, started a conversation and got the approval. And so we started this Dutch company that we ran for the following four years. Yeah, it's a, such an amazing story about how two people who have such differences but similarities. And one of the things that you you just mentioned over and over again about having a connection with being in a small town, despite the fact you guys are globe trotting effectively. Yeah. Well, that's right. She grew up in a small town up in the northern part of the Dutch uh, the Netherlands. And uh, uh, interestingly, approximately the same size as, as the, the one I grew up. 
And uh, just based on, on family values, uh, we, we are very similar. It's, mm. it's really quite amazing, though still today, when we're, the way we look at things, it's, uh, it's, it's quite similar. I think this is what I learned and everyone who's reading may come to their own interpretation. But as I was reading about how you had to go away physically to find yourself home emotionally. That was, that was very interesting because a lot of people I knew at the time said, well, Grant, you're running away from your problems. <laughs> and the way I put it now is I'm on my way to discover myself. And it worked. It, it, I, 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 found, I found out that I could uh, survive on, on my, my retirement income from IBM. Uh, that meant that my consulting at the time was money I could put into savings. I found that I only needed a relatively small apartment that I could... I was a pretty darn good cook that I could, uh, you know, see, meet friends and explore things and find that a personal freedom that I had never really, really known. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was fabulous discovery time. And of course I was in an environment where uh, initially in Paris, everybody was speaking French around me. I didn't learn a lot about the language, but enough to be able to, order food and bridge and bread. Uh, the Netherlands is much easier because everybody there practically under the age of 40 at least speaks English. Mm. Uh, but uh, but the, that multiple culture environment was, was just a rich environment to learn and meet people. I think everyone, regardless of their journey professionally or personally needs to have those pause moments. I think for you, the big shift that happened to you professionally and personally happened in those five years. What do you think about how that really impacted how you think about life now? Well, certainly the, that the international experience I, I had worked in international work at, at IBM. So I had worked with people from Europe, Latin America, Japan, all over. Mm-hmm. And I had a sensitivity to what they were dealing with and the, the commonality that we all had. And, and you know, we can see, so you see all these world conflicts going on, but when you, when you get to these places and talk to the, the real people, you can always find things that we have in common as human beings. And that, that, uh, that also, I think, has a lot to do with building your empathy of trying mm. to understand what's important to someone who comes from a whole different environment. Mm. And, and so w- uh, when I uh, spent that time in Europe, it's quite different from visiting a place. You can go as a tourist to visit places. And yes, you meet people. But having some in-depth friendships and experiences is is really important. I think about uh, what's going on today in the Ukraine. I don't know many Ukrainians. I've met some, 
But at the same time, nothing that can happen like that uh, feels distant to me anymore. It, it has a personal impact because I, I know that those people are, uh, are, are, are real people. Uh, and the same can be true for any other place, whether it's the Middle East or Africa or whatever. And I, I see people struggling with uh, starvation and and not having water and and uh, small villages and and those sorts of things. And it's it's hard for me to to put it aside without having some deep feeling. And that's something that uh, I know I carry around with me that uh, have, I have to be able to at least put some distance to be able to to, to stay on a level, level keel because you can get too pessimistic if you, you know, get too involved per, uh, emotionally. But, uh, but having that empathy with people, I think is critically important. And I think that's and one of my feelings about a lot of people in the United States, they haven't had that feeling. And, is too much if they're different from me they aren't good I, that really disturbs me that and of course that happens within our own country with regard to people that are different colors or different cultures and that sort of thing and that's uh, that sort of bias is is uh, strongly hurting to me when i see it we talked a little bit um in an earlier conversation about how the fact that we have so much technology and so much ability to connect with each other, but we seem so further apart. Yeah. Yeah. That, that yeah. I, I, I can't wrap my mind around that, that. And I'm hoping that things do evolve and change, but I did want to just ask this question. You, you said in your book that you are a change agent, not crank Turner. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah so let, let's dive into that what does that mean well the, a good example of that is that turnaround job i had with the software lab there was there were 900 people there and uh, i was observing it because i was a director of organization and it was an organization we knew need to be fixed uh, mm -hmm. it was in our division it, it was missing its targets, its uh, morale indicators were bad, it was losing, uh, losing money. And my, the, the guy I worked for, the division president said, Grant, I'd like for you to go out and fix the place. Go, go spend 30 days and come back and tell me what you want to do. So I went out there and I talked to every manager in the place and talked to a whole bunch of people and came back and said, here's what I found, I, all these, uh, you know, here's, here's what I found in flip charts and here's what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And he said, keep those charts. And I said, okay, that's the plan. He, and he said, how long will it take? And I said, two years. And so I went out there and uh, the, we, uh, it, we decreased the people in the organization from 900 people to 650. And at that time, we didn't fire people. These were people that were sent to new jobs. We reduced the, the number, the levels of, of in the organization chart. We have so a series of things that happened, but it, uh, after 18 months, morale indicators were up. We met all of our targets. And I went back with my charts, the original charts and said, well, here's where things stand. 
click, check, 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 check. And uh, he said, what now? And I said, I want a new job. Mm -hmm. And so two weeks later, I had another job. <laughs> and I described that as the, my, my first and only job that was on a real contract uh, at, at IBM. But uh, they, the next, so what do the, the other question was, what kind of person do we need now? And I said, just someone to come in and, and hold it steady and run the place. And that's what I call a crank turner. <laughs> so I'm a change agent. When it needed changing, that's, that, that uh, is the kind of puzzle I love and love to work with, big challenge. But when it gets down to, I just want to go to my job and look at a bunch of charts to say we're okay and deal with uh, everyday things, then that's, that wasn't me at the time. Mm. And I love the fact that you are just being honest with yourself. And the, the, I'm going to preach to the choir again. <laughs> you know, for those of you guys who have businesses and you've got people, you have to understand you need Craig Turner's and change agents. You need a little friendly mix of both. Well, absolutely. And that's also true in organizations mm -hmm. because um, I'm, the, I'm the one that's stirring uh, things up. And I had a fellow whose name is Frank Conti. Uh, C-O-N-T-E-Y, that worked with me over several jobs. Frank was the guy who knew to get, how to get things done. When uh, he and I moved to start a new division, we had, uh, this was the one with 11 manufacturing plants. We had no planning process. It was a new division and uh, we, nothing was settled. So uh, Frank, I said, Frank, we need a new planning system and we need it in 60 days. He, he was the one who could go out and and lay that in uh, out lay, lay that plan out and get the job done, and so he was the he was the good steady detail person that was a good balance for me, and uh, so that that combination really worked, and also Frank had the great up uh, great capability of saying, well, oh Grant, you're full of crap. We well, can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know i i definitely always valued all the people who have helped me over the years that you know call the balls and stripes as i saw them because i didn't need yes i don't need yes people around me at all then and now yeah absolutely crucial and so when i work with people now if i go into a company and i found find that the leader is a mechanic in other words looking only at at profitability and those sorts of things. Uh, and, and I then ask, well, where's the creative person? Where's the strategist? And, mm. and then if you go into a company and they have the opposite, which is the strategist, the creative person, where's the person get things done? And, mm. and so you need people at your side who can help balance uh, the, the things that you're not excellent with and allow you to focus on the, the, your strong points and allow them to focus on their strong points. And hopefully there's an overlap that you can work together. You know, as and I, and I don't want to dissuade anyone from reading your book, Hand on the Show, which they should read because it's actually very informative. But as you were talking, I was actually thinking about Michael Gerber's The E-Myth. And oh, yeah. in his book, oh yeah, it's classic, right? And yeah, right, his idea, that, yeah, that... The original version, guys, not all the spinoff versions and how most entrepreneurs become glorified technicians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, that's the, 
that's the reality of getting stuff done. Because, you know, that when you're starting out, you have great ideas, but then you have to lay in place all the things, uh, the little nitty details that, that need to be done to get things done. And, you know, going back to the Dutch story, they, the great thing about Uncleen and I working together at that time is she, may, she had majored in administration in, in her uh, high school days, uh, upper high school. And she was really good with all those details. And she knew how to get stuff done in Dutch. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want people who are listening to this message to think, okay, this is all about business. It's not about business. It's about life. It's about the intersection between who you are, where you want to be, where do you want to go, and not squandering the present, being fearful of the future. Yeah. Because one of the things that I read over and over is that you were always thinking about job to job to job to job to job to job, even though it was literally tearing you apart as everything was falling apart in your home life. You know that Joyce was holding things down with your kids, but you didn't have a relationship with her. There was right. always just these perfunctionary roles that you never really allowed yourself to say, oh, what, what's really going on? What's happening? Right. Well, I guess, yeah, exactly right. But the, you know, one of the, just as a comment about what you just said, we did have a good relationship early on. So, mm. there, you know, there were many, many, many happy, happy years. But I, I, I th the way I look at it is that we each evolved into our own world. And that was, that was the thing that uh, I think she and I both allowed to happen. And certainly from, the, from looking at it from my standpoint and the skills I've developed since then, I wish I could have done better. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and I'm glad that you do put into context because, you know, for a lot of us um, who are trying to aspire and do great things in our business and our jobs or wherever we're at professionally, we tend to forget that our aspirations have to be in sync with our partner's aspirations. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely crucial. Mm. There's so much that you can take away from your book. And I just wanted to ask you, where do you want people to focus on the professional angle, the personal angle, the, ref the personal reflections about how you went about your life in different seasons? Where do you want people to focus their energies on as they read through your book? Well, I, I think that uh, it's, you know, focusing on one of those two elements is not enough because one of the real lessons of the book is that you need to pay attention to both career and personal sides. I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? But uh, they, you know, those two have to work in, 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 in uh, good coordination. They, uh, you have to pay attention to your, your relationships and those relationships and your career choices need to be in concert. And so I think if, if, as people read the book and they are looking for, yeah, the career business stuff is interesting, I think. Uh, the personal side is interesting, but the, some of the real lessons are how do those two elements work, balance and work together? We spend a lot of time these days talking about balance between career and, and personal. And unless you have a job that has a sharp cutoff and doesn't require a lot of uh, 
thought, you know, very physically oriented job, you can't come home and say, that's it. I won't even think about that because we're constantly learning. Uh, the technology is constantly evolving. Uh, the challenges are constantly evolving. And so we have to be able to look at uh, developing your career and developing your relationships are both 24 seven jobs. And those have to, but the way to get balance is a more complex than just say at five o'clock, I'm cutting off one and starting another. Mm. We have to be able to create balance every day, every week, every month, every year as we go along and, and deepen those relationships and our understanding of them. I love what you just said, balance and relationships. If there is any main theme that I read, my personal opinion as I was going over your book was that I wanted to have that balance. I wanted to have that harmony. And it was always filled tilt on just my career because I, I, I it, it started off because of livelihood and then it became a form of identity. And then you just coming back home, having that hand on the shoulder, going, going back home to what really defines who you are, not just as a professional, but as a person as well. Yes. And it goes back to that question of, can I be myself on mm. my job, in my career, in my relationships? And if that, if the answer to that question is no, then you're fundamentally out of tune and you have cognitive dissonance. You're, you're, you're not balanced. And what does it take to get rebalanced? And that's, that's a question that many times we can't, we can't solve alone, we need help. And that's where good coaching and good advice comes into account. So to your listeners, I would say, call Denise, get that, get some <laughs> help. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, it, it's funny, I would, I would have said, you know, I, I wanted to call you 10 years ago when I was having my own career crisis. So yeah. but, but, but what I, I guess what people who are listening to know is don't just find a coach find someone that you can connect with that you resonate with that story about their own life is something that you want to learn from yes what are the kind of experiences that you you need from them what experiences have they had what's their what's their approach do you share values is this somebody you can trust and if, if it absolutely has to be somebody that you can work with and trust, have deep conversations with, and otherwise it just doesn't work. Absolutely. And I know that we spoke earlier that it's a mutual thing, right? We're um, not just taking on anybody with a pulse and a pocketbook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's uh, that uh, coach to person being coached is a critical relationship. Uh, and when, when it works, when you're working with the right person, it's magical. Mm. Mm. I totally agree with that. Well, this conversation has been absolutely delightful. For those who are listening, like, I, I, I got to get the book. I got to learn more about you. Uh, I got to find Grant. Like, how can people find you? Well, uh, the best way is handontheshoulder.com, where you can learn about the book and me. And uh, there's a developing 
part of that that talks about our coaching process in more detail. It's how to find your freedom. Yeah. And, uh, and also the book is available, of course, on major booksellers, Amazon and others, Barnes and Noble, as well as uh, many local bookstores, or you can order it directly from the website, whichever you like. The so website has a special tilt that I sign all those books. So if you want a message from me, that's how to get it. Um, and if you want to contact me, I've given you links about um, that's called as a link tree, how to find me on webs on on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and a little little bit of Twitter uh, of uh, uh, of other uh, medias as well. And also there's a uh, link that if you really want to talk to me, you can ask for an appointment and I'm happily try to help people. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for sharing your life and hoping I'm hoping that everyone who's listening got something, anything from this conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm just so excited for as many people to read and on the show because it's definitely had a positive influence on my life personally and professionally and i'm hoping that those who are listening will also be blessed by this so thank you so much grant for your time well, and well, uh thank, yeah. thank you denise and you've been wonderful you asked terrific questions and i might say for for a coach being able to ask the right questions is a really critical talent when you're working with people that need coaching so you're uh you've proven your skills at that and it's been a real pleasure to work with you it's a real opportunity thank you well and and i'm hoping those of you guys who are just excited with either one of us reach out and just not nod their head and go that was a good conversation <laughs> right yes <laughs> yeah well um it's been a pleasure i want everyone to just take that next step whatever that next step looks for you and we are here to help and guide you in whatever role that we can obviously hope to fill for you so well that being said everyone just wishing you a wonderful day and take care and be awesome okay thank you so much <laughs>